Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Hebrews chapter 1 will begin in verse 1. And the word of the Lord reads, Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of the Son, I mean, mean, the radiance of the glory of, of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which... Of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? They are, are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Dan Doriani, the professor of theology and ethics at the Covenant theology, Theological Seminary, um, in an article written for the Gospel Coalition, noted that every culture finds aspects of the Christian faith unpalatable. Michael Horton, um, a professor of theology and apologetics at Westminster Seminary in California, wrote, The clear message of Genesis to Revelation is to either go to hell with your own righteousness or go to heaven with the righteousness of Christ credited to your account by faith alone. Faith in Christ is saving. Faith in anything or anyone else is superstition. I want to welcome you back this morning to um, the second part of our series titled Faith and Hope. It is subtitled The Conviction of Things Not Seen. And if you have not already aware, the title of this series comes directly from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, which reads, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In fact, um, the text uh, that we just, just 11 uh, verse 1 is a text that we covered last week as we kicked off this series. Now, why do a faith, uh, I mean, series on faith? I mean, we as Christians, isn't that just simply part of kind of like the deal? Like, aren't we just, you know, you know, don't we just have faith simply just because we're Christians? I mean, isn't it just simply what we do? Well, the truth is that, um, that most people never stop to ask the question, what is faith? Most people don't ever think about what faith is and actually how faith works. Most people just assume that they know what faith is. But the problem is, as we have seen in the world around us, it's really not true. Right? Most people around us have this false understanding of what faith is. Um, 
That's why this series is all about faith. In this series, we're asking the question, what is faith? How does faith work? How do I actually have faith? Is faith faith, um, something that is real? Or is it simply just a pipe dream or, or a wish that I want to be true? Right? In this series, we're seeking to get clear about the nature and the reality of what faith really is. And because of that, this series is based on the book of Hebrews. Uh, because the book of Hebrews is one of the most important um, theological books in the entire uh, Bible. Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul. Some say maybe the Apostle Peter, but I'll stand with Apostle Paul. And it was, uh, but, but the, the, the book of Hebrews was written to answer the tough questions about faith. And not just simply what, fa- what is faith, but the really, really tough questions like, how can faith in something that is unseen be tangible and real? How can I put my faith in something so incredible, such as the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How can faith and hope be related to one another? And, and, and what does that kind of faith really require of me? What kind of, what does that faith mean for me and my life? You see, we live in a world right now that struggles with faith, right? And it has always struggled with faith from the very beginning. As Dan Doriani says, um, every culture finds aspects of the Christian faith unpalatable. Every generation has struggled with faith. And, and we've seen that, all right? Some people believe, as I used to believe, that faith is this blind belief in the unbelievable. It's this idea that you want something to be true so badly that you believe it regardless of what reality is. That is how many people understand faith. That is how many people define faith in the world around us. And the truth is, our world is hostile to that faith. Our world is hostile to the notion of faith. It's always been hostile to faith, though. Our world and our culture poke fun with people at people who have that kind of faith. People who live by faith are labeled as silly or juvenile. Um, They're labeled as... um, is anti-intellectual, backwards, naive, and sometimes even downright stupid. They're regarded as inferior because they have faith in God. People of faith increasingly are being mocked in the public square. We see it more and more in the media and around us, right? And it's not just strangers on TV, though. It's not just those uh, people who have an axe to grind on Facebook, Facebook and uh, YouTube that are hostile towards those of faith. It's also people close to us, right? There are a lot of people that are hostile to to our faith that are closer into our lives, like some of our neighbors, some of the people um, that we we call our friends, some of our coworkers, right? Some of us even have family members who, you know, openly are hostile to our faith. They not only reject the faith that we have, but they are hostile toward it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about it. And if you do talk about it, they want to make fun of you for it. There's an increasing number of people who are connected to us that believe that faith is simply this unwillingness to believe the unbelievable in spite of all the evidence. That faith is this magic power that people use to suspend the nature of reality so that they can believe what's unbelievable. And we're surrounded by a growing number of people that believe that is the definition of faith. But what we discovered is faith actually is more tangible than that. Faith is more real than that. Especially our faith in God, as we discovered, um, is that faith is always a response to truth and reality. Faith in God is always a response to truth and, and reality. Faith in God is the assurance, the God-given assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not simply the suspension of reality. Faith is the confirmation of a greater reality, a confirmation of the truth. 
We have faith because God has proven historically by his track record that he is faithful towards mankind. We have faith, right? Faith is not belief in spite of the evidence. Faith is the natural and logical conclusion that you come to based on the overwhelming evidence of God's goodness and faithfulness throughout all of history. Faith in God is always a response to truth and reality. And it's, it's about the faith is in response to the truth of who he is and the reality of what he's already done and what he will do for us in the future. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, the famous English preacher, said, Faith is believing that Christ is what he is said to be and that he will do what he has promised to do and then expect this of him. Faith in Jesus is not just some wish that that gets us through life when life gets hard. Faith in Christ is not just some wonderful story that inspires us when we're struggling. Faith in Christ is the rock-solid foundation that we build our lives on. Faith in Jesus is not a blind, illogical wish, right? Actually, it's the only logical conclusion based on the evidence. Faith in Christ is the only thing that makes sense based on all of the historical evidence throughout history with regard to Jesus. Our faith is, is very real and it is very tangible and it has the power <clears throat> to change lives. It has the power to change the entire world. And that's where we ended up as we kicked off this series last week. Uh, now, if you missed last week, I'm going to encourage you just take a moment uh, this week and, and either download or, or listen to the message online from last Sunday. You can do that either on our SoundCloud page or our church website. The address is in your bulletin, but that way you can kind of have a context for the rest of this series. Um, but as we've already established, the world struggles with the idea of faith, and there's a number of reasons for that, right? And one of the most important reasons why the world struggles with faith is, is because, the, because of the object of our faith or what it is that we put our faith in, or more importantly, who it is that we put our faith in. You see, our faith is not in some nebulous, obscure, kind of you know, universal mind that controls the universe that we can't relate to. Our faith is actually more personal and up close than that. Our faith is not in something we have really no concept of. Our faith is actually in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again, the Bible exhorts us and makes it very clear that if we're going to be saved, we must believe in Jesus, that we must have faith in Christ. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. In the book of Uh, In the book of Acts, the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. In John 3.36, it reads, For whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 14.6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. You see, we don't simply just exercise faith in something. We have to put our faith in someone. We have to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is, and he always must be the object of our faith. Right? And this historically has been a really huge problem for the world. The world has always had a problem with the orthodox Christian doctrine of faith that we are supposed to have in Jesus. Right? And don't misunderstand, okay? It's not that the world doesn't like Jesus. The truth is the world loves Jesus. All right? The world adores him. Muslims love Jesus, all right? I, don't, I bet you didn't know that. 
Right? They actually look to Jesus as one of the greatest prophets in all of Islam. They believe that he was born of a virgin. Right? They just don't believe that he actually died for our sins. Right? But they do love Jesus. Right? So do our Mormon friends. They love Jesus. Right? They, 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 uh, they, they say that, you know, they even call him Savior. They say you have to believe in him just the same way that you have to believe in Joseph Smith. They just don't believe Jesus is really any different than us. Our Jehovah's Witnesses friends, they believe they love Jesus. They believe that, that, that he died for them. They just believe that he was an angel, and so therefore he doesn't get to be worshipped by us. Hindus loved Jesus. Gandhi said, uh, Jesus is one of the greatest teachers humanity has ever had. But that's all Gandhi believed about him. Buddhists loved Jesus. They believed he was an enlightened man. Even atheists love Jesus. They believe that he was a great man who taught people great things. They believe that Jesus is someone that we actually should try to be more like. In fact, I have, I have a, an atheist friend of mine who knows a lot about the Bible. He knows a lot about faith. He knows a lot about Jesus, right? In fact, he still studies the Bible, right? And, and the reason why he says the Bible is because he wants to learn to be more like Jesus. He just doesn't believe in all the miracles. He, he's an atheist. He doesn't believe that God is real. He just said that Jesus is the perfect example of humanity and that we should all try to live like him. He really, really loves Jesus. Right? The, world ha- the world doesn't have a problem with Jesus per se. The world just has a problem with what the Bible actually teaches about Jesus. What the Bible actually says Jesus really is. The world has a problem with what the apostles believed about Jesus and what they taught about his identity. The world has a problem even with what Jesus himself claimed to be about who he is. You see, the Bible says that Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is, in fact, God incarnate. God in the flesh. The first two sentences of the book of John read this way. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was... God. He was in the beginning with God. It's pretty clear from the context that the word is God, right? And it's really clear from the context that the word is Jesus. Because in verse 18, it said the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Bible makes it really, really clear that Jesus was not some, just some human teacher. He's not just some prophet. Right? He's not just some really good guy with a beard. Right? He's not just some angel. He is God in the flesh. In fact, Jesus claimed that title for himself in John chapter 8, verse 58. He called himself by the divine name, I am. The same divine name that God used of himself in Exodus chapter 3. Right? He claimed to be God and the Jews who were there knew it. That's why when he said, I am, they picked up stones to kill him because they thought he was blaspheming. The Bible makes it really, really clear. The apostles make it really clear. Jesus himself makes it clear that he is, in fact, God in the flesh. So our faith in Christ is not simply in some human in history. Our faith in Christ is simply not just some enlightened individual. Our faith in Jesus isn't just some prophet of old. Our faith in Jesus isn't some angel. Our faith in Jesus is none other than God come to the earth in the flesh. God came to the earth to become a man And he promised to save us from our sins. He died on the cross and he came back from the grave, proving that he is what he claimed to be and that he can do what he has promised to do. So the object of our faith, the assurance of our hope is Jesus, our Lord and our God. And that right there is where the problem begins with the world and 
our faith in Jesus. They have a problem with us believing that Jesus is more than a man in history. They, they have a problem with the notion that Jesus is, in fact, God. Now, why would they have a problem with something like that? They had so much respect for him. Why is that a problem? Well, number one, in our post-enlightenment world, people simply just reject the miraculous. Many people just, just don't believe in, in, in the supernatural. They think that the supernatural is superstition. Right? They believe that science has killed any notion of su- the supernatural or miracles. They, they don't believe that anything like that could ever happen. And their problem is that if, if Jesus is in fact God, then the supernatural then is absolutely true. That means miracles are real. That means spiritual things are real too, like demons and angels and the devil and hell and heaven are all real too. And many people who who claim to be rational, even evidence-driven, want to reject the supernatural just out of hand. Their worldview for them makes more sense that way. Number two, the reason why people reject it is if, if Jesus is God, then his words about him being the only way, the truth, and the life, and nobody coming to the Father except through him, if he's God, then those words are true, which means all other religions are false. All other faith systems are false. All other philosophies are, are inept. That means there's but one path to God, and that is Christ himself. Faith alone in Christ himself. All roads don't lead to God. The only road is the narrow one. And this offends people. It didn't take very long to see how it offends people. Right? We have a pluralistic culture that wants everybody to be all equal, even their beliefs. Right? Because they believe all religions are true on some level and all faiths lead to God. But if Jesus is God, then the exclusive claim of Christianity, of faith alone in Christ alone, is true. Jesus is the only way. And the third reason why that people want to reject this notion that Jesus is God is that if Jesus is God, that means he's the author of the Bible. And that means what he says is, in fact, the law. Right? So when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, that's not a suggestion. Right? When Jesus says that you are to love your enemies, that is not optional. When Jesus says to take up your cross daily and deny yourself and follow me, he means just that. When he says repent and believe the gospel, that's a command. When Jesus said when you look at a woman lustfully, You commit adultery with her. He was serious about that. When Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, that's exactly what he meant. If Jesus is God, that means the Bible is true and I'm accountable to the God of that Bible. And one day I'm going to stand before him and he's going to judge me. And if I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, one day I will spend eternity separated from God in hell, no matter how good of a person that I have spent my life trying to prove that I am. There are just certain things our modern world does not want to accept. They don't want to accept the supernatural. They don't don't want there to be an exclusive claim that that Christianity makes. And they don't want to accept the moral demands that our Bible places on on our lives. And so they reject that kind of faith. Now, again, the world loves Jesus. (laughs) The world acknowledges he exists. They celebrate his commands to love other people. The world looks up to him in the way that he treats other people. But they just don't want to believe the truth about him. And so they say that that kind of faith in Jesus is irrational and superstitious and illogical. 
And because of that, there are many people who claim to follow Christ who have attempted over the years to redefine Jesus, right? So they can still have Jesus and have that relationship with him, right? But then get rid of the stuff that the rest of the world hates. In fact, Dan uh, Doriani, he wrote, he said, that friendly liberals often begin by redefining Jesus himself. Right? They attempt to redefine Jesus from the orthodox doctrines of Christ. In fact, he adds that the quest for the historical Jesus seeks to distinguish Jesus of history from the Christ of faith. That's what, what people want to do. Is they want to take Jesus and divide him into two. They want to separate the Jesus of history that everybody loves from the Jesus of Christianity that the world rejects. Right? They want only the Jesus that they think that history talks about. And they want to reject the Jesus that the Bible describes and the apostles teach about. The idea is that everything you know, that, that is human about Jesus is true and acceptable. And everything that's supernatural about Jesus is flatly wrong and rejected as superstition. That way we can rescue the feel-good parts of our faith while cutting out those things that many people are uncomfortable with. There are lots of people in the world around us who love Jesus and love the idea of Christianity. And they love the peaceful and loving elements of the Christian religion and the fellowship and, you know, and, and worshiping. And they reject the orthodox teachings about who Christ really is because it's uncomfortable. It's challenging. It's controversial. It's unpopular to believe in Christ as God. But as the Bible says, there's nothing new under the sun. Because this rejection of Christ is the same problem that was faced by all those in the first century. In fact, we, we, we talked about this last week. Um, uh, as we talked about last week, the letter of Hebrews was written because there was a lot of pressure um, on the Jewish Christians to either reject Christ outright or to reject the orthodox teachings about who he is. And this pressure didn't simply just come from the strangers in Rome. This pressure was coming from their family members. From, 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 from Jews who have rejected uh, Jesus as the Messiah, right? And these were their friends and their neighbors and their countrymen. They were getting pressure from inside their own families to reject Christ. Because for the Jews, again, who rejected Christ, the idea of Jesus being God, that was blasphemy to them. And so because of that, the pressure that many of these people faced was just incredible. And many people began teaching that Jesus really wasn't God. Maybe he was kind of a prophet, or he was an angel because people just didn't want um, Jesus to be God. They wanted Jesus. They wanted his message. They really wanted all that stuff about grace, right? They just didn't want the parts, you know, that caused others to reject them or persecute them. And that's the context of the letter of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to basically three, three groups of people. Number one, he was writing to encourage true believers to stand firm in their faith. Number two, he was writing to encourage people who kind of liked the idea of Christ and they, they, they intellectually kind of assented to the gospel, but they didn't actually move to faith in Christ all the way because of persecution, right? And number three, he wanted to share the gospel with people who were not believers so that they would actually understand the gospel and move to faith in Christ in spite of the persecution, that's why he wrote the letter. And in the first chapter, Paul opens up and he destroys the notion that Jesus is simply an angel. You see, the Jesus being an angel solved a lot of problems for people that were Jewish back then. Because 
They venerated angels. Angels were something that they looked up to. They were seen as special, supernatural messengers of God. In fact, that's what angel meant. It, was, it meant, it, it meant it, an angel was, was the, the, it literally means messenger. And so, um, so they thought by calling Jesus an angel in some respects or giving him, you know, that, that same platform of angels, that they were giving him credit, you know, as this supernatural, powerful being of God. Right? And they were able to then hold on to Jesus without persecution. But Paul destroys this line of thinking in the very first chapter of Hebrews. In fact, um, in the first chapter, Paul asserts 14 individual truths that completely dismantle the notion that Jesus is an angel. He develops 14 individual truths in this first chapter that provide a compelling case that Jesus is none other than God in the flesh. And we'll explore these 14 truths really quick. Um, as we examine Hebrews chapter 1. In fact, um, truth number 1 it, that Paul makes clear is God had spoken through Christ. Paul says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Paul reminds us that reminds these Jewish Christians that God has revealed himself in the past by speaking to them through prophets, men that God has appointed to speak on his behalf. And God chose specific men to bring a revelation about himself to the world. And he said uh, that God in many times, in many ways had done this. But now in these last days, God has spoken to us through Jesus. Now, the reason why this is important is because Paul is stating very clearly that, that Jesus was selected by the father to speak on behalf of him. That Jesus had the authority to speak for God. That he, that, that, that he speaks with the authority that really no one else speaks with. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through 29, we read, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the, crowd, uh, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus was unique in his authority to speak for the Father. That's truth number one. Truth number two, Paul declares that Jesus is not just some prophet, but he is, in fact, the Son of God. He said, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in the last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now, that, now notice that Jesus is not saying that, hey, you know, God spoke by the old prophets of old, right? And then now he's speaking through the prophet Jesus, right? He does not relegate Jesus to the category of prophet. No. Paul makes sure to, to specify him as the son. He says that Jesus is the son of God. He is the very son of God, the unique and one and only son of God that speaks on his behalf. John three sixteen, Jesus is called the only begotten son. This phrase, um, only begotten, comes from the Greek word uh, pronounced monogenes. And, and this word monogenes literally means single uh, of its kind or the only one or one of a kind or unique. The idea is that there's no other one like it. The idea here is that there has never been and never will be another like Jesus. Not one man, not one angel. Jesus is unique. Okay? And he's the only son of God. And he is vastly superior to all others. And as a son, God has given him the authority to speak on his behalf and to reveal himself. Truth number three, Paul makes it clear that Jesus is the rightful owner of everything. He says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our father by the prophets. 
But in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus' son is the heir of all things. Jesus is the rightful owner of everything. It all belongs to him. Every planet, every star, every galaxy, every person, every animal, every molecule, it is all his inheritance. It is all rightfully Jesus's. It belongs to him. It doesn't belong to angels. It doesn't belong to men. It belongs to Jesus. Number four, Paul tells us that Jesus created everything. Paul says long, long time, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed as heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the creator of everything. The father created it all through the son. John chapter one, verse three says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator of everything. Everything that is material that we can see and everything that's spiritual that we cannot see. He's the creator of heaven. He's the creator of earth. He's the creator of all of mankind. He is the creator of all angels. And he is vastly superior to all men and all angels because he created them all. Truth number five, Paul says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Paul says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the visible light of God's glory. Now, this right here, this is an interesting concept because this word radiance oftentimes is explained as a reflection. People will say that Jesus is simply a reflection of God, but the word reflection really doesn't do justice to the Greek idea here. A reflection isn't really enough. The word radiance literally means shining forth. Okay? It's not reflecting light. It's the actual light itself. Okay? And the idea is this, the reason why you can see uh, is, is because that there is light waves that come from a light source. They bounce off the object. They travel to your eye. Your eye takes those light waves and they send electrical signals up the nerves to your optic nerve into your brain. And your brain translates those signals and processes those signals to recreate the image in your mind that you actually see in three-dimensional space. You see, Jesus is not simply an image of God in time and space. He is the very light that comes from the light source that gives you the ability to see God in the first place. In other words, when you are seeing Jesus, you're seeing God. Because Jesus is the light of God. He's not just a reflection of God, but God himself. And then truth number six, uh, Paul goes on to say that Jesus is the exact representation of God. Okay, he says he's the radiance and the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, this is a very important expression because this expression carries a lot of, of, of weight with it. There's a lot, of, a lot of historical context to this particular word. This word from the Greek means character. It's the character of something or the exact impression. It carries with it the idea of a stamp and a die that was used to make coins. Right? John MacArthur notes that Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. The Son is the exact representation of the nature and the essence of God in time and space. William McDonald says, In every conceivable way, Christ exactly represents the Father. No closer resemblance could be possible. 
In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Think about that. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. In John chapter 14, verses 6 through 9, we read, Jesus say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is not an angel. He's not simply some good man. He is the visible image of the invisible God. Truth number seven, Paul tells us that only did God create the universe. It is Jesus who keeps the universe going. Paul says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power, by the word of his power. You have to hear that. Okay. Jesus upholds creation. Jesus, by his power, by the power of his word, by his command, upholds the entire universe. Jesus is not simply a part of creation. He is sovereign over creation. He is sovereign and he's in control of everything in all of creation. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says, And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus not only created the entire universe, but he actively sustains it and keeps it together moment by moment. It exists because he wills for it to exist. It continues to work because Christ causes it to continue to work. Jesus, moment by moment, is actively keeping the universe working. You understand the magnitude of that? It is Jesus, the Son of God, who sustains the existence of the universe and everything and everyone in it. You exist by the will of Christ himself. John MacArthur points out that the universe and everything in it is constantly sustained by the Son's powerfully effective word. The term here, uphold, conveys this this concept of movement or progress. The Son of God directs all things toward the consummation of all things according to God's sovereign purpose. Jesus is not an angel. He is in control of the entire universe. Truth number eight, Paul tells us that the Son of God, not only does he communicate with the Father, or communicate for the Father, not only does the Son, the exact representation of God, not only is he... Did he create all things? Not only is is Jesus the one who sustains all things, it is that very same son who has made purification for sins. Paul says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of his majesty, of the majesty on high. Jesus himself, God in the flesh, made purifications for sins. Not an angel. Not some wise man, not simply some prophet. The son of God himself made purification for sin. Once and for all, sin was done away with by his own sacrifice of his own life. Jesus did for us what could not be done for thousands of years before by the blood of bulls and goats. He made a permanent and final purification for sin. And he did that so we can finally... Have a relationship with God. This is not something that an angel can do. 
And then in truth number nine, not only did he do all that, after he completed his work, he sat down at the right hand of God. Paul says that after making purifications for sin, he said at God's, at the right hand of the majesty on high, Jesus now rests with his work complete and he sits in the supreme position of the right hand of the Father. No person or no angel or created being can attain such a high place of honor. The only person who can sit at the right hand of Almighty God, of God the Father, is God the Son. Truth number 10, Paul tells us that Jesus' name is above all other names. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is greater than the angels, just like his name is greater than their name. In fact, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, we read, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The truth is the name of Jesus, at his name, every knee will bow in submission. Every human being will bow in submission to God. Every angel will bow before Christ and confess that Jesus is the Lord. All of creation will worship the risen king. He is indeed greater than men and angels. Promise number 11. Paul makes it clear God never called an angel his son. Notice what Paul says here. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be my son. Jesus is the son of God, not an angel. God never called an angel his unique son. God never called a simple human being his son. He called Jesus, God in the flesh, his son. Truth number 12, Paul makes it clear that angels worship Jesus. Paul says, again, when he brings forth the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The angels worship Jesus. The angels were commanded by God to worship the Son. Angels only give worship. They do not receive worship. In fact, in Revelation chapter 22, we read, I... John, and the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Worship is not given or received by angels. And it's not given or received by, by men. It is worshipped and received by God. In Acts chapter 14, we read about Paul and Silas. And it says, And when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, um, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes. Because... He was the chief speaker and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and offered and wanted to offer sacrifice to the, you know, with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their garments and they rushed in the crowd crying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men. 
of like nature with you. And we bring you good news in that you shall turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Paul and Barnabas rightfully rejected the worship like the angel in Revelation did. Jesus is worshipped by men and angels because he's not simply a man and he's not simply an angel. He is God. Truth number 13. Which of the following is the most, uh, and by the way, I think is the most, most breathtaking of all the truths. Paul reminds us that in the Old Testament, the father calls the son God. The, the father himself calls the son God. Paul quotes David who says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels like winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness, is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They are they will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same and your years have no end. See, in this section right here, this text right here, Jesus is described as completely sovereign. He is described as eternal. He is described as God himself. In this text right here, he is absolutely, he is absolutely telling us that you should be compelled to believe not simply in Christ as a prophet or an angel, but God in the flesh. And then finally, truth number 14. Jesus is exalted by God as supreme, and the angels still remain servants. He says, And to which of the angels did he, has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, not, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Paul makes it absolutely clear that Jesus is not some angel. Not even close. Instead, he is the living incarnate word. He is God in the flesh. And this, this is how people... I don't know if you noticed, but this is how Paul actually opens up the letter. He jumps right in here and he just starts addressing this issue, right? I don't know if you noticed, but like all the other letters, it's like, I, Paul. There's some kind of greeting, but there is no greeting here, right? There's no greetings or, or hey, how are you doing? Or, hey, by the way, it's Paul. I just want to check in. There's none of that. He just jumps right in and he starts letting them have it, so to speak. He just starts explaining to them that Jesus is no way is an angel, Right? He makes it clear that he created all things. He sustains all things. He's the very image of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. The God, the Father himself, calls him God. So why, then, would Paul open up the letter this way? Because it seems really forceful, doesn't it? I mean, if you really break it down and you see that there's 14 individual truths that he's, he's proclaiming here. Why does he open up this letter this way? Well, he gets to the heart of the matter in, in chapter 2. He says, Therefore... One of Paul's famous words, therefore, you can always uh, kind of substitute therefore as in light of that or because of that. All right. Therefore, in light of all of that about Jesus, you could say, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, 
lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Paul says, brothers and sisters, we need to be really careful here. We need to pay close attention to the details. We need to hold on to the teachings that we've been taught. We need to hold on to the orthodox doctrines that we have been taught from the beginning. Because if we don't, if we don't remind ourselves of the truth, if we don't absolutely hold on to the truth of Scripture, as hard as it may be for people to accept, as unpopular as it may be, as 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 much persecution as we may face in light of this truth, if we don't hold on to the truth about Christ, we will drift away. And this is dangerous because the message from the angels that God has given us is that God will judge every sin, every sin. The wrath of God abides on sinners and every sinner will receive his wages for his sin. If that's the truth, then how will we escape the wrath of God and the judgment of him if we reject the very truth in the one who saves us? How are we going to be saved if we deny the truth about the one who came to earth to shed his own blood to bring life to us? How are we going to escape the coming wrath of God if we neglect the salvation of God by compromising his message of the gospel? But Paul is making absolutely clear here about the truth about Christ. That it is not an incidental issue that needs to be worked out later and that you can wrestle with later. He makes it absolutely clear that the truth about Jesus is a life or death issue. If you believe that Jesus is just a man who lived a great life, you do not have life. If you believe that Jesus was an angel, a perfect angel, you do not have life. You only have life if you put your faith in Jesus, God in the, in the flesh, who created all things, who came and died in your place and was resurrected three days later. Only then, when you believe in that Jesus, do you have life. And I know this truth is, is offensive to so many people around us in the 21st century, but it was also offensive to those in the first century. But hear me, church. It is not our responsibility to be loved by the world. It is not our responsibility for everyone to like everything that we have to say. Our responsibility is to bear witness to the truth. And the truth is, those people who claim to be Christians who seek to separate the historical Jesus from the Jesus of our faith, number one, are not Christians. And number two, they're willing, hear me, they're willing accomplices in the spiritual suicide of thousands and even millions of people who want Jesus but don't want the unpopular parts of Jesus. Paul makes this clear. We must stand firm in our faith in the truth about Jesus. He is the Son of God, the creator of all things, the sustainer of the universe, and the only one who has sacrificed for our sins. Jesus is not an angel. He is our Lord and our God. And church, that is the truth on which we must stand. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, 
even in my own personal life, there's pressure to compromise. And I don't want to speak as with unnecessary words as of a legalist. Because I know that I can't save myself. I'm saved by your grace. I can't even change myself. It's only by your power that I can be changed. It's only by the Holy Spirit working in me can I be different. But there is, Lord, an opportunity for all of us. That, Lord, that, that there are people in our lives who are going to challenge us and push us and, and make it uncomfortable for us to declare what we believe about you. Lord, but this isn't a new thing. It's a historical thing. It's been happening since the beginning, since you, since Jesus came out of the grave. There's this tendency to want to deny the truth. And it's not because people just are hateful. They just don't understand the, or want to accept the implications of it, Father. But Lord, stir our hearts to accept the implications. Stir our hearts to be hungry for that truth. Stir our hearts to love that truth. That you didn't send someone else, that you came yourself to save us, that you rescued us by your own hands. That you loved us so much that you made a way for us that's impossible for on, on our own. That you came and you took on our sin and bore it to the cross. And in some mysterious way that I still can't understand and fathom, as Christ hung on the cross, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That somehow, some way, there was a gigantic cost that was paid to set me free. Lord, may I never desire to compromise that. Father, your gospel is beautiful to me. And it stirs my heart to worship you and to be obedient to you. And I pray that it does all of us that way. That we desire, Lord God, a closer intimacy with you, with Christ our God and our King. And I pray, Father, all of us would be emboldened in our faith to go share the hope of Christ with our community and our world. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And we pray for BBS and all the kids that will get saved this week and all those who work, Lord. And we pray that most importantly, you're glorified in all that we say. We love you and we praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.